Matt, um, yeah, Matt was engaged to the gal who signed him up for that class, so good things happen when you take it. Uh, don't, uh, don't mistake in Matt's monotonous delivery for lack of enthusiasm. That's not monotonous. It's called matatone, right? That's his excitement right there. Uh, I, I love basketball. I think a lot of, you know, some of y'all love basketball also, but there's a um, basketball player, he's retired now, named Kobe Bryant. Uh, Kobe, whatever you think about him, whether, you know, his attitude, his, you know, the way he treats his teammates, whatever you think about him, uh, the reality is that Kobe Bryant is one of the best basketball players who ever lived. Um, you just, that's just, you can't deny uh, those certain facts. I read an article about Kobe Bryant recently in ESPN magazine while I was going to the bathroom one day. And uh, just kidding. I'm not kidding. I was. Over a long period of time, over many days, I read this article. And Kobe was basically talking about how he became to be who he is, how he came to be who he is. And he talked about how beginning of his career, he came out of high school, went straight to the NBA, had all this potential. Everyone said he's going to be the best. He could dribble. He could pass. He could shoot. He could jump out of the gym. He, was, <clears throat> he had everything. And yet he realized at the beginning of his career, he's just kind of languishing on the end of the bench for the L.A. Lakers. Again, in a few games, do some crazy dunks, get on SportsCenter. But he was never, he, he knew that he had so much, but it was never translating into the game. And so the story goes, he reached out to some people and he asked them, right, people who are at the top of their craft, what is the secret to your success? First person he reached out to was Michael Jackson. You know Michael Jackson, right? He's bad, he's bad. You know it, he's bad. Michael Jackson, the singer. He reached out to Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson said, why don't you come over to my Neverland Ranch and we'll have conversations and we'll talk. And he basically downloaded everything that Michael Jackson told him about how to become amazing at what you do, how to, how to become the best at what you do. And he said he left that ranch with all of these books and all of these resources that talked and gave biographies of the secrets to the success of countless other people who didn't have potential, but they lived out that potential and saw it turned into actuality. And so he said this began this voracious appetite for success, for secrets into the people's minds and hearts. So he asked Michael Jordan, he asked different heroes, war heroes, military heroes, all these people. And the one question that he asked for every single one of them is, what's your secret? And what's your secret? What got you to where you are? Because he realized, man, I've got all of this, all this natural God-given stuff has been given to me, but it's sitting here being wasted and I'm not seeing it translated into the way that I live life. 20 years later, Kobe Bryant became one of the greatest players of his generation and one of the greatest players that the world has ever seen. And I, re I was reading that and I thought to myself, how many of us are like young Kobe Bryant? I mean, check this out. For the past six weeks, we've been talking about stuff and I know we've been talking about stuff that's mind-blowing to me, promises of God, things that he's given to you, God-given 
God-given gifts that have been given to you when you, the moment you put your trust in Christ, these things become our inheritance. Some of us have even cried as we heard about the great blessing that we have, and we're sitting here, we've got all these things, but we're at the end of the bench, unable to translate that into the game. And so we feel like, man, what do I need to do in order to see all of this stuff that I've got become lived out in my life? You ever feel like that young Kobe Bryant? I feel like that sometimes. I know all the stuff that I've got. Father who loves me, he's never going to stop loving me. He's going to answer my prayers. He's going to meet all of my needs. He's going to give me strength to make it to the end of my life. And he's going to give me strength every day of my life. But I don't often live like that. You always live like that. If you don't, then you're like me, sitting like Kobe Bryant at the end or towards the middle, maybe even to the, and some of us are actually in the game because we've realized the things that God's given to us and we're starting to live in that potential and it's becoming realized and we're living a life of victory and power, one against which the forces of darkness, we will be unstoppable against them. The disciples felt this way. They felt like they're sitting on the end of the bench as they watch Jesus in action. You could ask one person. You see them living this stuff out. Who would you ask? What's the secret to your spiritual success? The disciples knew exactly who they would ask, and they did in Luke chapter 11. Let's look at Luke chapter 11. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 13. In fact, this sermon was a sermon that wasn't supposed to be preached. I was was trying to get to verse 13 and preach on the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit, but uh, in trying to bring us up to speed on the context. I felt like we needed to camp out here for a little bit and then finish out the text next week. But we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 11 and look at Jesus' teaching. One of the things that the disciples realized, well, we'll see it in in verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. This is what they realized. They realized, you know what? If there's anybody who understands appropriates and unleashes the promises of God in their life. It's Jesus. He knows what it is to have a father who loves him, who is proud of him. He knows what it is that every day he's going to get strength to make it through. He knows what it is for having three and a half years of his ministry He didn't have a job. He knew what it was to have a father who's going to provide for all of his needs as he's faithful with what God has entrusted to him. If they look at that person, Jesus, they look at that man and they say, man, that guy, he he knows what, he's living it. And his life is unstoppable. And what is it that they notice? They notice that Jesus was always praying. And so they say, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, we know your secret, but tell us the secret to your secret. Teach us to pray because prayer is the hands by which these promises become fleshed out and unleashed in our lives so that we can live in and live out the potential that God has won for us through his son at the cross. And so what do we see about the life of Jesus? The three things, three thoughts I want to bring out as we walk through this text together with the next 13 verses. The first thing that we see is that you won't pray unless you realize that you need to pray. (coughs) Excuse me. It it says in verse 1, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And throughout Luke's gospel, they're realizing, dude, Jesus is always 
going to pray. Right? He's always praying. 41 times, okay, 41 times in Luke's gospel alone, it says Jesus taught about or Jesus went to pray. So 33 times in the gospel, Jesus is teaching about prayer in some way. And then eight times Jesus, to get this, Jesus, the master teacher. Jesus, the miracle maker. Jesus, the death defier, water walker. Jesus Christ, son of God, was constantly praying. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed at his crucifixion. He prayed on normal days, waking up early in the morning. He prayed when he was in grief. He spent the whole night in prayer before he chose his disciples. He went on a mountain to pray where he was transfigured. He prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus Christ, get this, the son of God was always praying. And his disciples noticed it. They said, wow. And at one point, Peter gets it. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if Jesus needed to pray, how much more so us do we need to pray? Like Jesus understands, I need to pray. I got to pray just to make it today. He understands this. How much more so us? Lord, I need you. Oh, I need every hour I need you. Do we understand this? Pastor, teacher, shepherd, praise team leader, ministry team leader, whoever you are. Do you understand, child of God, trying to make it through the day? Do you understand if Jesus needed to pray this much, how much more do we need to pray? Because you won't pray until you realize that you need to pray. And so they asked Jesus, teach us then how? And then he goes on and teaches the Lord's Prayer, which I'm not going to talk about because we uh, spent some time a year and a half ago talking about it. But he gives this parable to teach us of the need to pray. Listen, verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, okay, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, Because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he's his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. What is Jesus saying? He's telling this story. So let, he, he invites you into it and says, suppose one of you has a friend who's, okay, so here, here he is. Imagine yourself, okay, as a young man, young woman in Israel living in those days, okay? You're laying in bed sleeping. It's about midnight and you've got a friend on a journey. You don't know he's on a journey, but you, he's someone that maybe you grew up with in elementary school or Here's your college roommate, and he'd gone off and went to battle or war or whatever. Whatever is the case. You got this friend, and he's taking a long, 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 long journey. It's so long that he rolls up into your town at midnight. So he gets in at midnight. What does he do? He needs a place to stay. There's no hotels, no motels, no Sheraton, no Motel 6, none of that stuff. There's nothing like that. So what did people do? There was little inns where you could stay, but they were notoriously shady. 
and so you wouldn't stay there. That ancient Near Eastern culture, okay, Eastern culture like Asian backgrounds are very hospitality driven. So I, you know, Asian cultures are like this. I was speaking at a retreat in a small town, small church, small city some years ago, and uh, I was really tired. It was in, I think it was in Minneapolis, and I'd gotten there, had to uh, lay over and all that stuff, change planes, and I got in. I was pretty wiped out. I was ready to go to sleep. So the person driving, I said, so how far is the hotel from here? And he looked at me as if I had just cursed at him. He said, hotel? What are you talking about, hotel? You're going to stay at one of our church members' houses. I was like, oh, okay. Um, I like hotels. Yeah, you know, when you stay at someone's house, you always, you know, you have to wear pajamas. You can't just walk around in your cutoff shirt. And you have to be, like, somewhat respectable. And you can't wake up at 10 o'clock if you want to because they're like, oh, he's a pastor. You got to wake up at 5 o'clock to pray and stuff like that. Like, I like hotels because I just want to kind of be incognito mosquito and do my own thing. Like, no, no, no. You're going you're gonna to stay at our house, and we're going to treat you so much better than a five-star hotel. I was like, okay. You know, your house is, is, is great. And I wasn't convincing. They're like, no, no, no. Hotel, that's blasphemy. They didn't say this. But they acted as if I had just spoken blasphemy. They said, no, we're going to put you in a so That's Asian culture. But the ancient Near Eastern culture was even more deeply embedded in a culture of hospitality. So not only was it safe, but it was acceptable for your friend to come knocking on your door and say, hey, I'm staying with you. And so it's midnight. He knocks on your door. You open the door because you're single. You're not, you're not in bed with your kids like your neighbor. So you wake up. You open the door. You're like, dude, it's mid- in midnight. At, in those... They don't have electricity, obviously. When sun goes down, the family goes down because there's none to do. You can light a candle, play Monopoly, whatever it is that you do. But there's no electricity. So midnight is like 3 o'clock in the morning for us, which if you're a college student, is still like, you know, you're 6 p.m. But just imagine everyone is sleeping. Everyone is sleeping in your village. It's super late, and he knocks on the door. You open the door. You're like, dude, what are you doing? The cultural expectation is that you would have a place ready for him. Problem is, he didn't text you, no cacao message, no Facebook message, no email, no phone call. Hey, I'm coming. And he just shows up at your doorstep at 3 o'clock in the morning. So what do you do? He's like, dude, he's got his, all of his bags. He's like, I got to stay at your place. You have friends like that? They just roll up to your pad, and you're like, dude, I'm married. But they're like, no, I'm going to stay with you. So they're sleeping on the floor. That's what he wants to do. So he comes to your house, and he's like, dude, I'm starving. I'm so hungry, and I want to eat something. The problem is you think to yourself, holy cow, I've been on this Daniel fast for 20 days and I've got nothing to offer to you. I've got no food to give to him. There's no super Walmart around, no Wawa, no 7-Eleven, nowhere that you can go get food in that place. And so here you are. And the expectation in that shame, honor culture is that you treat your guests far better than you would treat yourself if they're coming into town to receive hospitality from you. You know, you, you go to an Asian person's home, even if you drop by unexpected, they're like, oh my gosh, and they'll bust out whatever they can, at least fruit. They'll cut it up and they'll give it to you. They'll, you know, whatever they can pull off their shelf, even if it's like almost expired, they'll give to you because that's the cultural expectation. Right? They take care of you and you are treated better than they would treat their family. Problem is you've got nothing. You've got no food left. 
This isn't just like, oh, you know what, my college roommate's hungry and I don't have money for pizza. The, the, the way that it's been described in a commentary, it's like, you have a Super Bowl party at your house. You guys are all coming to my house. But I burned all the food and there's no food to eat. And every store is closed because it's Sunday. You guys come to my house and you're really angry and you're really ups- upset. And there's a deep stain of shame on my face. It's like inviting all these people to your wedding, but the caterer said, what? July 7th? I thought you said June 7th. And there's no food at your wedding. That's a big problem, a big problem. And so what do you do? Here's what you do. You're like, hold up, buddy. Make yourself at home in the dark. And then you go running next door and you start banging on your next door neighbor's house. Problem is, he's married and he's got kids. Listen to what he says. This is crazy. The door is already locked, verse 7. Well, first he says, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. That's crazy. Who does that? Who sleeps with their kids? Oh, that's right. I do. And you know what? Quite frankly, it's terrible when you do. Because if you get up, if you move and they wake up, then it's like Armageddon is going to break loose in that place. Right, they go crazy, they start screaming, they start crying, and then the next day is going to be even worse because they're tired and cranky. And so I understand when he says, you know what, the kids are in bed with me. If I move, if I get up, they're going to wake up too. Go away, go away, go away. But what do you do? Because you've got to feed your friend. It's a cultural norm. It's an expectation. What do you do? You keep on knocking. You be the annoying dude that keeps on knocking, keeps on knocking. You know what? I can be very annoying. I can be. I I was playing this out in my mind, and I can imagine Steve Carell, like Michael Scott from The Office, doing this, like knocking. Open the door. I'm not going to go away until you open the door. I can be very annoying. And so he's. And so finally, this guy says, "All right, fine. Not because you're my friend, but because you're stinking annoying." That's what Jesus says, right? He. not, not get up and give him the bread because he's his friend, yet because of man's boldness, he'll get up and give him as much as he needs. Because this guy really annoys me, so I'm going to open the door and not just give him three loaves, but as much as he needs. He gives it to him. He gets it, and he goes home with the bread that he needs to set before his friend. What's Jesus saying? Two things that he's saying here, and the first thing I think is clear that God our Father, right, we talked about, is infinitely greater than this jacked up friend. Okay? That's the first thing he's saying. And we won't pray unless we believe that God is better. But here's the second thing, and here's the point I'm trying to make with this first thought. Not only is God infinitely greater than that friend, but our need is infinitely greater than this man's need. The question is, do you see it? If you believe that you need God that much more than this Super Bowl party-throwing friend who had no food needed food. I think some of us don't believe that. And it's why we don't pray. You know what, God? I can handle this on my own. I've made it thus far. Pretty good on my own. I don't think I need you. Yeah, you know what, God? I've been doing this for, for quite a long time, and I think I've got it figured out. I think I'm okay. I don't think I need you. See, the greatest, the greatest danger in prayer is not unanswered prayer, y'all. It's our unoffered prayers. That's what F.B. Meyer says. 
Because when we don't pray, we miss out on the power and the promises of God that are given to us. But a lot of us don't really believe that we need God that much. And here's a challenge, y'all. The greatest spiritual barometer is our prayer life. And if we're judging our spirituality by our life of prayer, then there's a deep spiritual unhealth that is infecting a disease that is infecting the church of the 21st century. It's why churches are falling apart. It's why Christianity has such a a, a poor witness in the world. Every societal ill, every ill within the church can in some way be attributed back to this place of lack of prayer because we don't think we need the power of God because we're quite frankly okay trusting in the power of our human resources and of our gifts and of our talents to make it happen apart from God and apart from prayer. And it does not bode well for the church of the future. Kathy Keller says, you know, we, we make excuses for, and yeah, we make excuses for why we don't pray. Too tired, too busy. I was going to, but my friend called me up, and so we had to go out, and so I missed my time. Can I tell you? Here, here's what she says. If someone told you that your doctor told you that you're sick and dying, and unless you take this pill every night from 11 o'clock until 11.15, you're going to be dead by morning. And I promise you, every single one of us would not, none of us would say, I was too tired to take that pill. I was too busy to take that pill. I couldn't do it because somebody called me out to watch a movie. So I couldn't take my pill. Unless we're convinced that we need God and that we cannot live apart from him, we're not going to pray. That's the first thing that Jesus brings out from this parable. Now, you won't pray unless you See and believe that you need to pray. Second thing that, that, he, that he shows us is that you can persist in prayer because God doesn't get annoyed with you. God doesn't get annoyed with you. Again, here's that funny thing, verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he's his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Again, not only is our need greater than this man's, but our father is greater than this friend. And perhaps the reason why some of us are afraid to pray is because we don't really believe that we have a father who's better than this friend. We feel like we're bothering him. Here's what Jesus says. When he says, because of the man's boldness, it says in the footnote, persistence, there's not a good way to translate this verse. Literally what he's saying, the word that he's using, the phrase that he's using is talking about someone that breaks the social norms in order to get the thing that he's asking for. He breaks societal norms. Other people, he's saying, wouldn't do that, but he was willing to go above and beyond because he wanted to receive the answer. I shared this a few years back when it happened. I remember the days immediately after our second child, Elijah, was born and we were at the hospital. I stayed at the hospital with Olivia and Elijah for the, uh, for the, for the couple of days, couple of nights, while Manny was with her grandparents at home. And every day she would come and they would come and they would visit. 
And along the way, during the time, if you've ever given birth at a hospital, people will come by and they will see you because they need to do different things. They had three people at each shift specifically assigned to Olivia and the baby. There was a nurse, there was a tech, and something else, three people. And then there were different people would come in and they would have to do different tests and check their hearing, check their blood pressure, all this stuff, their vitals to change the diapers and uh, to make sure that we got their birth certificate okay. And all these people were coming in and out. We had friends visiting and, and people wanted to see the baby, wanted to see Olive and all of these different things happening. And at, at certain points in, in the day, uh, Olivia would be doing something or the baby would be doing something and it wasn't a good time for people to visit and to come into the room. And so they would always knock very politely. And if they needed to come in, if they were a nurse or someone who worked at the hospital and they had to come in, we'd invite them in. And if they couldn't, if they weren't appropriate or if we weren't appropriate, we would say, hey, can you wait a few moments and we'll come and call you in. This is how it went. They would knock. We would either say, come in, or, hey, can you hold on a sec? Or I'd run to the door and say, hey, can you give us a, a few minutes? Very polite. It was all a nice interaction. So one morning, very early in the morning, we were sleeping. Olivia was getting, trying to get some much-needed rest. Uh, Elijah, baby, was sleeping, and I was trying to get my rest as I was sprawled out on that little love seat uh, in Winnie Palmer Hospital. And without notice, without knocking, the door is thrust open violently. It bangs against the wall and it bounces back. And I'm like, dude, who in the, what audacity, what kind of a person would do that? And as I'm about to, I don't know what I was going to say. I was probably going to say, hi, how are you? But, <laughs> but whatever I was going to say, I, I looked over and there I see our little daughter, Manny, two and a half years old, this big old smile on her face, carrying this big old pillow that Olivia asked her to bring and she's walking into that place uninvited just completely oblivious to all social norms and she just busts in that place and I said Manny how are you and I said you're the only person in the world that could have done that and I wouldn't get upset at it because she's ours and because I'm her father and I don't get annoyed with her breaking social norms to come into the place where we are. God, our Father, doesn't get annoyed with us when we persistently ask for the things that we need. I know some of us, we've got issues, we've got stuff going on, and someone says, hey, have you, have you prayed about it? Uh, I don't want to pray about it. It's such a petty thing. I don't want to bother God with it. Or, yeah, I prayed about it once, but, you know, nothing happened. Then why don't you keep praying about it? Well, God knows. I already prayed. You know, God doesn't forget these things. So, you know, I don't want to bother him. He's got, like, bigger things to do. And what those answers betray is a heart that is unable to understand how much God our Father loves us. And that he's not annoyed with you. In fact, Jesus tells us through this parable that this is what we ought to do. He's saying some things would not have been given in prayer had we not persisted. And if you understand the heart of the Father, you would continue to pray. And then he goes on and he debriefs it by taking us in verse 9. Verse 9, 10, 11. He tell, in verses 9 and 10, he said, this is what he says. <coughs> so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, 
the door will be opened. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is debriefing that parable. He's explaining that parable in other language. I'm not going to go deep into it because, again, I've preached several sermons on this passage. But here's what Jesus is saying. If you understand the original language, Jesus doesn't just say, ask and it'll be given, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. He does say that, but it's written in the continual present tense. So what Jesus is saying is ask and ask and ask and ask. And as long as you're in the present tense, continue to ask and continue to ask and continue to ask. Because if you do, then you will receive and seek and seek and seek. And seek and continue to seek and continue to seek. And then you will find. And then knock and knock and knock. And the door will be opened unto you. In other words, here's what he's saying. Don't stop asking until you've received. Just ask and ask and ask until you've received. Because his promise is you'll receive if you ask. Seek and seek and seek until you find. Knock and knock and knock until the door is open to you. Again, the biggest issue of our prayer life is not the unanswered prayer. It's the unoffered prayer. And some of us, God is waiting to give us a blessing. But we've given up a little bit too quickly. And Jesus is saying, don't stop asking. Some of us, like, you know, we don't have because we don't ask James 4 too. And it's simple. I'm a planner. I like to plan. I don't, I don't want to pray about it. I just want to plan and make my own plans. How's that working out for your life? It doesn't matter our personality. He says our first thing should be to pray, right? Ask. Second thing he says is seek and keep on seeking. There's a difference. Your, your child says, you know what, mom? I lost my water bottle. You know what, dad? I lost my backpack. I don't know where it is. Go look for it. Go seek it. There's a difference between the way a child seeks, a dad seeks, and a mom seeks. Right? You know this. A child looks around the room, I can't find it, mom, dad, help me. A dad flips up one thing, says, I can't find it. You're right, honey, it's not there. A mom will flip everything upside down until she finds that thing. Jesus is saying, seek like a mother would seek for something that is lost. That's what he's saying. Don't stop because you didn't get it after the first time. And there's this escalating intensity. Knock until the door is open to you. A, few, uh, a couple years ago, I think I've said this before too, but a couple years ago, I was at home one day and, and this uh, got a, a knock on the door. It was actually a, a ring on the doorbell. And I didn't want to answer the door because at that time it was, it was morning and usually it's some solicitor who's trying to sell something. So I didn't open the door. Uh, usually, you know, you wait about 10 seconds, no one answers, 15 seconds, you ring the doorbell again. So the doorbell rang again. And I was like, ooh, right? they are not going away. Rang the doorbell a third time, and they still, um, I, I didn't want to answer the door. Usually, you know, if they ring four times, and then you open the door, it's like you're, you're a jerk, because why didn't you open the door earlier? So I'm like, I'm going to play it cool. I'm just going to act like nobody's home. Just don't breathe so the person doesn't hear me. After about the fourth ring or so, I start hearing, uh, I, I recognize a voice. It's the elderly lady next door to me. She's like 70 years old, and she's yelling at me. Like, David, <laughs> David. And she watched Frozen. She's like, I know you're in there. <laughs> David, ding dong, David. So she rang about, I think she rang about 10 times. I'm like, what is, you've got some major malfunctions. You keep on ringing the doorbell. There are about 10 times. I said, okay, she's not going away. So I opened the door. I was like, what is wrong with you, Leah? <laughs> I said, I'm so sorry it took me such a long time to get the door. I was 
tied up in the shower or something like that. I open the door, and she's like, David, <laughs> you got to move your car. Or else the mailman's not going to deliver mail to us. I was parked in front of the mailbox. I said, okay, thank you. She's like, you're welcome. And then she left. I was like, that's it. I thought about that. I was like, man, I got a story to tell Olive about this crazy lady who lives next door to me. But I thought to myself, you know what? She, was expe- she must have been expecting something. She must have been expecting something. And that's why she knocked and knocked and knocked until the door was opened to her. When you go to pray, do you expect something? Do you go expecting that God is going to hear, that he's going to give you what you ask? If you do, then I think we would persist a little bit longer because here's the promise of God. You can persist because God's not annoyed with you. Ask and ask and ask and don't give up. Why is it then? Hey, here's our reality. I've prayed for things that haven't gotten answered. Why? Last thing that we see is God won't give you a bad thing if you ask him for a good thing. God won't give you a bad thing if you ask him for a good thing. Jesus is, so, you know, people say, what would, what would Jesus be like if you were to hang out with him? Jesus is hilarious. And you can tell by this parable he gives in verses 11 and 12. This is like crazy funny. I, I don't know. If you don't think this funny, you have a bad sense of humor. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, right? Ha ha, that's funny too. Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here's what he's saying. Don't you hate when this happens? You go to your dad. Say, dad, you know what? I really want to eat at, I want to go to Gochi and eat some sushi today. Oh, you know what? You can't have that. Or my son loves fish sticks. Hey, Dad, can I eat fish sticks for lunch? No, I've got something better here. And you throw a snake on him. Like, who does that? <laughs> like Jake the Snake Roberts. You guys remember that wrestler, Jake the Snake Roberts, used to throw a, a snake on, the, on his opponents, right? He's the only dad that would ever do that. But even him, he really is evil. Yeah, I want a fish. Yeah, a snake. Yeah, blah. Or he, if he asks for an egg, oh, Dad, thanks. Uh, I know Mom left early to go to work. Can you make me some hard-boiled eggs? Ah, uh, you know what? I thought, uh, I knew I was going to be the one making breakfast for you. So instead of hard-boiled eggs, I've got a surprise for you. Hard-boiled scorpions, yeah! That's great. Don't you hate when dad does that? Says, if you then, though you're evil, wouldn't do that. You know how to give good gifts. How much more your father in heaven, Matthew says, will give good gifts. He says, here, give the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, God is not going to give you a bad thing if you ask for a good thing. And I think we have to understand this. Because a lot of times, and a lot of times we feel like, I don't want to pray about that because I'm afraid that if I pray about that, God's going to send me to Africa. Or if I pray about this girl that I like, oh man, he's not, he's going to make me break up with her. Or man, I don't want to pray about my, my relationship with this dude because if he does, I think if I do, I think God's going to make us break up. And we think in our heart of hearts that God's going to give us something bad. We're asking for something good. I don't want to pray about my job. I'd just rather go about it myself because I think maybe God's going to send me out to 
wherever it is, some place. And we have this understanding that God is not a good, good father. And so we doubt and we wonder and we question, is it really worth it for me to pray about these things? Because quite frankly, I don't trust that God is going to give me good things when I ask him for good things. On the contrary, here's what God does. The reason why sometimes God withholds from us the things that we pray for is precisely because he doesn't want to give you a snake. Because we don't always know what we're asking for. And if God, if my four-year-old son says, Daddy, please, will you give me the car to drive? No, I'm not going to give you the car. That's ridiculous. That would be like giving a snake when you ask, when you think you're asking for a fish. I'm not going to give you the car. Please, 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 please. He begs me, begs me, begs me. Okay, fine. Here, go ahead. Take the car keys and go. Who, what kind of an evil father would I be to say, okay, you can have this evil thing in your life? No. God doesn't do that to you. He doesn't do that to me. He doesn't give us bad gifts. And maybe the reason why he's withholding that job, withholding that promotion, withholding that transfer, withholding that gift is because we are not ready to receive the things that God has in store that are better than those. God is saying, I won't give you a snake if you ask for a fish. I, this, is, uh, this is a bad story of mine. But when I was in college, there was a you know, group of friends, and we all kind of ran together. And, and there's this one girl in our circle. She was uh, quite winsome and attractive, and a lot of guys attracted to her. I never was. But here's what I did. <laughs> I gave her a nickname. Right? Here's, the, here's the thing that happened. Uh, so a lot of girls liked her, and they wanted to get with her, and she would kind of hang out with them, and she would play them, and she would break their heart. And every guy, again, never happened to me, but every guy that she hung out with ended up getting jacked up. And so my friends and I, and this is bad. I'm not saying you ought to do this, but we came up with a nickname for her. We call, it, it, was, it was Konglish, Korean and English together. We called her the Golden Bem, which means a golden snake, because she was like, this is bad, this is bad. Don't call anybody this, okay? Stop, don't judge me. I was 18, okay? This girl... Looked like gold on the outside and people were drawn to her. But as soon as they got close, she would bite them and poison them. And they're, oh, my heart. And they would. God is saying, listen, there's a lot of things that you're asking for that you think are gold. But they're really poisonous. And some of us, actually, probably a lot of us looking back on our lives will realize, hey, you know what? I'm glad God didn't say yes to everything that I prayed for. Because some of those things would have come back and bit you. You realize now that some of those things for which you prayed were really snakes when you thought that they were fish. God's saying, I'm not about to give you something bad when you ask for something good. And the question is, do you trust him in that? Haven't you had situations in life where you thought it ought to go this way and you demanded that it go this way and you expected it to go this way and everybody said it would be great for it to go this way and it didn't go that way, it went that way. And you look back and you realize, oh my gosh, I was spared so much pain because God didn't answer my prayer the way I asked, but he answered my prayer the way that I would have asked had I known everything that he knows. 
what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. That's how God works in our lives. But I know that there's another reality. You know, we're this intergenerational congregation here, and we've got a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds and places in life. And so when I write a sermon, I prepare a sermon, I try to think of seven people in our congregation and try and ask myself, what would this person think? What would be this person's question? What would be this person's response? How would this person push back against what I'm saying? And as I'm thinking about this and I'm praying over this, I can't help but to think of people in my life who have prayed for things that everybody would agree. How could this be a bad thing? How could God sparing and extending the life of a child be a bad thing? How could God allowing somebody to come to know Jesus at a young age be a bad thing? How could these things that we know intuitively in our hearts, these got to be good things. How could these possibly be bad things? How could they possibly be something that God doesn't want to give to us? And ultimately, I'm not going to satisfy you with an answer because there are some questions for which the Bible is unclear on and we won't know until we get to heaven and see God. The only thing that Jesus says, the question that he asks in light of all of this teaching on the fact that you have a father who loves and he gives good gifts is will you be able to trust him? At the end of the day, that's what it's about. When we say, Jesus alone is enough. Is he enough in the absence of answers to your deepest, darkest questions? Is he enough even when your prayers don't get answered? Is he enough to cling to when everything around us is falling apart? Is he enough? And what Jesus says is, do you trust your father in heaven enough when you don't see the answers? And it doesn't make any sense to you. Again, as I anticipate your question, I saying, I, of course. Anybody can say that. Anybody can say trust. Just walk, is walk by faith and not by sight. You're right. But to me, what this passage gives me, that no other person just saying, trust God, trust the Father, what this passage gives that none other can, that the one who says it is Jesus. Jesus not only taught people how to pray, but he entered into the very darkness of this teaching. And he said, Father, apply this to me. If there was ever a prayer that was uttered from the lips of a human being, that seemed to be the right prayer. A son, the only begotten son, so dearly loved by his father, said, if it's possible, as I stare in the face of the most awful and criminal and heinous and unjust act of suffering and death that the world could know, dad, if it's possible, would you let it be done another way? And as we so often sing, the father turned his face away. We may not understand 
all of the answers in our lives. But what we do know is that Jesus was willing to put this very teaching to the test in his own life. And he said, yet not my will, but yours be done. And it's because of that cosmic no, the greatest and largest unanswered no that the world could ever hear. It's why you and I could pray and know that God will say yes to us. He's saying, can you trust this father? Can you trust this father that every intention and every desire and every gift of God's heart is loving and it's for our good? If we can't trust that, there's not much else we can cling to. But if we can trust him, then we can trust him in anything. Let's pray. Let's take a minute to pray to the Lord God right now. God's promises are always faithful and true. And Jesus never places the weight, God never places the weight on any human being to try and figure out the answer to why this prayer was denied or was not given to you the way you wanted it. That's far too much for us to try and comprehend. But all he says, the question he does ask is, will you trust? Will you trust your father? who gave his one and only son in order that you could be his eternal treasure so that you could be with him forever. That place where there's no more questions, no more tears, no more doubting, no more fears, no more wondering. Just a wonder at the beauty of our God the wisdom and the power and the love of the one who gave himself for us. Let's pray for a few moments right now. First thing, maybe there's a prayer that you've allowed to go to the scrap heap, to the recycle bin, to the trash can. God's saying, let's resurrect that. Let's resurrect that. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Because the promise is as you keep on doing that, you will receive what you ask for or something better. Our Father says, I'm not about to give you bad gifts when you ask for good ones. So keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on praying. Maybe some of us, our prayer lives have been deadened and stopped up because we, quite frankly, have a hard time trusting God. In light of that massive unanswered prayer that you feel like he did not answer, rather answered in a way that you did not pray. Maybe you've been afraid to pray. The question the Lord God is asking Take a step of faith, just a small step of faith to open up your heart, to trust me again. You don't have to fully dive in, but just dip your toe in it. Just start saying, God, all right, I don't understand. But if you're really there and if what that man up there said is true, then I want to take a step again. I just want to talk to you again. And just bring your concerns, bring your confusion, bring your questions before the Lord. Bring your doubt, your discouragement, your disillusionment all of these things before the Lord. Spend a minute or so to pray right now, to respond to the word of God. Right? This, guys, if we get and understand 
the heartbeat of God for prayer. Man, that these other promises are going to be appropriate and we're going to move into this world unstoppable for the kingdom of God. We've got to begin in prayer. We've got to know our need for him. So let's pray for a minute or so, surrendering our hearts to the Lord, maybe praying for someone who is doubting. Lord, let their faith be awakened today. Maybe praying for those who don't have the strength to pray on. You be the friends of the paralytic who carry them to Jesus. Let's pray together for a couple moments and then I'll pray on our behalf. And then uh, we'll continue to worship the Lord. Jesus' name we pray.